Hi, friends. This is episode 57 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey everybody, it's just my delight to be with you today. I hope you're blessed by this session. In fact, I know you're going to be blessed by this session because it absolutely blew us all away. God was there. He did some amazing things. We laughed more than we've probably ever laughed. And we actually cried laughing and we actually cried tears of sadness and tears of joy. It was all the extremes of the emotions. And I can't wait for you to experience this as well. Today, we're going to be taking a look at two parables we thought we knew. And when we dug into them and realized what God was really saying about the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, it absolutely changed our lives and changed our minds. And it's our prayer that your life will be changed as well today. Please take a moment, go to thebiblelab.com, get your study guide. You're going to want to follow along with this one because when you understand what Jesus was really saying about the lost sheep and the lost coin, you're going to fall in love with him like never before. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Everybody ready? Yes, here we go. Number one. When driving, I'm going, to, I'm going to pause here, because some of you know the people next to you. Some of you, because you've been split up, because uh, there was one seat here, one seat there, and so you're split. So you're going to have to do some profiling today. <laughs> if the person next to you looks like this, uh, that's how you respond. So just profile. Here we go. God is love. Number one, when driving, the person sitting next to me often takes the scenic route instead of the shortest one. <laughs> okay, okay, so what, let me tell you what I'm seeing. I'm seeing about 40% of you saying yes. The person next to you raised up a yes card too. They're pretty upset. Um, most of you are raising no cards. And those maybes, I am seeing about 5% maybes. You just realize those people don't wanna fight. But you take the scenic route and it's so frustrating. Number two, I tend to lose things quite often. I tend to lose, <laughs> there's a big laughter over here. Um, I tend to lose things quite often. Oh, look at this. Okay, we are split 50-50 on this, 50-50. And what's interesting is I'm seeing amongst spouses, one is saying yes, the other is saying no. Am I correct? Look at this, look at this. It's, it's like every spouse that has a yes card, the other says no. So you're the finders. Thank you, Carolyn. Yes, we got the losers and the finders. God brought you together for a multitude of reasons. <laughs> this is just one of them. Yes, perfect, perfect. Isn't God good? Number three, God rejoices over lost sinners who are found much more than lifelong faithful Christians. Hmm, this is interesting. I'm seeing about 55% yes, 40% no, and 5% maybe. This is interesting. I did not expect this answer. Let's just have closing prayer and go home. I, I have to study. I've got to figure this thing out now. It's going to be so good today. It's going to be so good today because many of you who have grown up hearing the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, you keep hearing this phrase over and over again that God rejoices and all of heaven rejoices so much more over one that's lost than all that stayed in the fold, the faithful. I'm going to ask you a really tough question in a moment, but I'm going to save it because I don't want to hurt you just yet. <laughs> Number four. Once a person realizes their spiritual lostness, Jesus comes to save them. Once a person realizes their spiritual lostness, Jesus comes to save them. I know, this isn't taking you a time, is it? Okay, I'm seeing a majority of no's. Looks like about 60% no's, 35% yeses, and 5% maybes. Boy, that maybe crowd is sticking at 5% today. Hmm. So... We're going to have to talk about this too. 
because we're split. We are way too split on this to not talk about it. So the last two things, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to spend a lot more time in that. You're helping me decide what to spend more time on. Number five, the church is responsible for making some people lost. Ah. Once again, not what I expected. I'm seeing a majority of yes. I see about 80% yes. And a split. Now, there's more maybes than no's. The maybes hedge out the no's. Um, looks like about 15% maybe, 5% no's. So the majority of you are saying the church is responsible for making some people lost. All right. That's something we've got to talk about because we're the church. And if we're responsible, I, we don't want to be responsible for making people lost. We want to be responsible for making people found. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. But remember, the focus of the Bible Lab is not to focus on what the Bible says mankind should do. It's a focus on what God has done and who God is. So to keep us out of the deep weeds, we're not going to look at man's fallacy and by man, I'm, uh, whenever you say the church, you're talking about mankind as well. And so we'll look at it, but what we have to focus on today, it's going to be kind of challenging for some of us who've grown up reading Scripture and trying to apply it to ourselves. We're going to have to fight against saying, so what does it mean I have to do so that I'm okay and I get to go to heaven? We don't read the Bible that way here. We read the Bible to say, what's to say about God and how does it make me love, fall in love with him so much more? Because I know this now. Because it's all about relationship, right? Christ said, it's how I know you. Are you known? And the people that don't make it, Christ comes down and says, I never knew you. So it's all about being known, right? So let's focus on being known and knowing God simply by focusing on what, does, what do these stories tell about the character of God. And you may think you know this parable, but you're going to think about it differently when you leave. Because I know in my study this week, I, I actually started, I was like, why am I doing this parable? What is there new in this parable that hasn't already been said and taught? So I went and I did my exegetical study and I started reading through all these commentaries. And I was like, how come I never knew this? So there are things about this parable I never had heard before and I can't wait to share with you. But before we get there, we have to get our minds in the right place. Let's get our minds in the right place by answering this question. Get your question and comment cards ready. What is the most valuable thing that you've ever lost, and did you ever find it again? Most valuable thing you ever lost, and did you ever find it again? Confession time. Here we go. First one, right up here. Go ahead. You said you're hearing? Ah, oh, you obviously got it back through hearing aids. A little bit. Oh, in one ear. Yeah. That's hard, isn't it? Yeah. Very, very hard. Back here. Our daughter. Oh. She was barely started walking. She was probably... <laughs> and we were at the mall, and we were t turning around looking at uh, these toys, and they were... Both of our kids were actually behind us, and they were playing. And when we turned around, our daughter's gone. <laughs> It was like the day after Christmas. And she actually walked all the way to the other end of the store, and we saw this lady looking down, like talking. I mean, my wife ran one way, I ran the other way, and we met all the way to the other end of the store. That was at the Ontario Mills. Uh, that, that's a huge mall. Oh, my word. Wow. Yeah, that is scary. Scary. Anybody else? Most valuable thing you've ever lost, and did you ever find it again? Over here. My daughter also, a couple of years ago, she was given five to 10 days to live. Incurable problem with liver. She's amazingly healthy today. Amen. So God is good and answered. That's awesome because a lot of us can't share that same story. You know, many of us have lost loved ones. We just talked about some of our. Our, our beautiful loved ones from the Bible Lab. We're doing a memorial service in two weeks. Um, the story isn't always in that way. I'm so glad. I'm so glad they were found. Back here. I lost my wife's wedding ring. 
<laughs> never found it. Okay, a couple questions. <laughs> what were you doing wearing your wife's wedding ring? No, I'm kidding. Well, she, uh, she was going in to have surgery, and they wanted to take it off, so I said, okay, I'll put it in my pocket, and I never found it, so all we had to do is replace it with a newer one, better one, that's all. Bigger one. So what I found is that how sentimental the wife is about the wedding ring has to do with how many carrots are on top of that wedding ring. Because <laughs> I've seen a lot of ladies become very unsentimental uh, when they see a huge rock. I, I don't know what happens there. Yeah. Jordy. I uh, recently got married, and we bought a house out in Palm Springs, and we went on our honeymoon and uh, as we were driving back after you know, about 24 hours of traveling and driving and everything, I didn't know where the house keys were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just another hotel night, but it was, it was not, a good, uh, not a good day. <laughs> You're just preparing your wife for the years to come, what it's going to be like. Finding things, yes. So you're the, yeah, she'll be the one finding. Thank you, Carolyn. Awesome. Back here, toward the back, yeah. I work here at Loma Linda, and uh, a few years ago, uh, I'm in the real estate section, and I lost a, a ring of master keys. And, uh, and that was to a big chunk of the property around here, and I figured, you know, I might as well pack my bags because they're not going to be happy with me. But uh, I, 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 asked, I asked God, I said, Lord, this is a pretty valuable piece of uh, keys here that I need to find. And uh, it was about two days. He, I, he, I had to think about it for two days, but they showed up. Oh, my word. That's, uh, that's such a stressful situation. <laughs> Carolyn. I have to brag on my husband. He has the most wonderful guardian angel, a specific one designed okay, from that's, heaven. Carolyn, that's called a backhand compliment? <laughs> no, no. This angel is fantastic. He, he can find hearing aid. He, she can find hearing aids. Uh, yes. He slash she. I said she found it, so it must be a she. So hearing aids, glasses, keys. She's wonderful. Even before I even have a chance to look, I'm only the second string player. This angel's the first string. That's awesome. But I, I'm sure several wives out there are saying it's it's has to be a she because men can't find anything. It can be right on the counter in front of them. I walk right past it. Over here. Um, first time here. Welcome. So glad and you're here. I, I just told Carol Ann I wasn't going to say a word when she, <laughs> sh when she showed me the card, if you want to make a comment. Awesome. But I feel inspired to share this, uh, not because it's my story, but mm. because of the encouragement that it could bring to others in the room. Awesome. awesome. Thank you. I lost my son mm. just two years ago. Mm. Overnight, literally. Mm. Totally unexpected. A son that um, was extremely gifted and talented in design, mm. living in Dallas, Texas, with whom I had not communicated for too long. Mm. He wasn't actively involved with the Christian community mm -hmm. any longer. At his memorial service, the majority of people that came, came from 12 hours away in Dallas, Texas. All of the community with whom he had been totally socializing, professionally designing, actively involved for the last several years, not one of whom was a Christian. But at the memorial service, we gave an opportunity for any of Daniel's friends to stand up and make a comment about their association with him. These visitors, 
most of whom said later they'd never been in a Christian church, got up and gave amazing, quotes, testimonies about the impact of love and acceptance that they had discovered in Daniel's life and how he was always there, always willing to share, and through whom they discovered a view of God. The publisher of the five different magazines for whom he was the creative and, and design director said, not only will I miss him professionally, I've never put together an issue for five years without him creatively in charge. But she said, I'm not worried about where I'm going to go with my magazines, although today, Russ, I don't know how I will put together the next issues. But she said, I just want to know, I just want you to know what an experience it has been to be in this place at this time to meet his previous Christian friends and to be able to share with them that I've never been to a Christian funeral, but I've never had such an insight into what Christianity is about as what I've come to discover through the life of your son. The reason I share this is because not many parents ever have an opportunity to hear of the impact of what their child, who is no longer actively in their faith, may be making on the real world. And someone commented, he has probably had a greater impact in Dallas, Texas, than all the Adventist churches combined in Dallas, Texas, in this community. You see all the Lovett cards around. That means we're all deeply moved. And I want to thank you for your bravery, for sharing that. First time guest here, and we want you to understand this is the environment we want to have to where first time guests feel comfortable that you can share to this level. And I, I want to say thank you for that. This story is absolutely apropos to what Jesus talks about in the next two parables we're going to go through. The very scenario that you shared with us of your son being outside of the organized religion practice is perfect for what Jesus is about to talk about. Because the audience that he's talking to are the devout churchgoers. It makes all the difference in the world in understanding what Jesus is trying to say in the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin by understanding who he's talking to. He's talking to the church. And what Jesus says to the church, it's not positive. And many of us today, as we church people look at what Jesus says, we're going to see a beautiful character of God that I think will give you a lot of hope. And, and I know I hear in, in your testimony, you already have hope. You're going to see your son again. Amen. I, I share with a lot of adults who, uh, they have adult children, and they fear for their kids because their kids are not actively involved in a local church. And you're trying to figure out what to do because they live in different parts of the country, and the church is not only dead, it is toxic in their spiritual growth. And I have so many parents talking to me, what do I do about my kids? I just fear for my kids. I love my kids. I want to be with my kids forever. I couldn't imagine being in heaven for eternity without my kids. You have to plug in every single thing we've, we've learned about the character of God over the years doing this. And the reality is you have to accept the fact that God loves your kids more than you do. And I know that's hard to fathom, but so is God. And his love is unfathomable. It's infinite. And if God does, which he does, 
love your kids more than you, don't you know he's even more desperate that he doesn't spend eternity without your kids too? So what does that mean for us, God's followers? As we take a look at this kingdom tale where Jesus is talking to the church people and trying to help them understand what they're totally missing, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, records Jesus giving these kingdom tales. It's actually part of a trio. First one's a lost sheep. Second one's a lost coin. The third one's a lost son. We call that one the prodigal son. We don't have time to go through that one, but the beauty is, since it's a triplet, you see two of them, you really see the third as well. You know what the third looks like. And so in this session, we're just going to look at the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, just for sake of time. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 through 10 in the NIV says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on, it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Verse 8, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We got a lot of a lot of things to cover, but we have to talk about where where we currently are. How do you view this? And I'm going to push you here. This is going to hurt a little bit because some of you have read over this. Oh, it's so beautiful. Yes, God's after that lost sheep, and He's going to do everything He can to go find those lost souls. Fortunately, he found me. Now I'm in the fold. I'm part of the 99, and I'm here, and where's Jesus? He's out looking, but what about me? Does he care less for me now? Why do you think Jesus celebrates the unfaithful and apparently abandons the lifelong religiously faithful? The beautiful picture of God's concern, but how have you reconciled his celebration of the lost and the way he takes for granted the faithful? ever thought of this? Because you realize if you're not the lost sheep, you're the ignored sheep. (laughs) Am I right or am I right? Well, I'm right. Okay. How do you reconcile this? Does God have concern? He seems to ignore the faithful, the the way we read it in English. We have to answer it by looking at what does Scripture really say. And what we have noticed over the years here is that whenever there's a place that shows that God is somewhat less than love, it's obviously something's just been lost in translation. Because God is love. And anything, any teaching, however old or new that it is, if anything expresses that God is anything less than infinite love, it's heresy. And so if you're sitting here saying, well, that's great. He's after the lost. Thanks for finding me. Am I in a holding pattern here? I'm waiting for the surprise party. We're sitting around and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. But God's out just getting the lost. I'm thankful to be here, but obviously he's got to spend all of his attention on the lost. And we're just left out in the open country. Harvey. I'm sorry, I'm going to have you start again. Blue mic. The third question you asked is really a trick question. No. The first question, the second question, and the third question are trick questions. I'm only talking about the third. Okay, let's just talk about the third. Because 
everybody has been lost. We are all lost people. Okay, good. And so we are all being brought back by God to his fold. So we're all part of the 1%. That's correct. Maybe a, a bad phrase to use, but we're all one percenters. That's correct. So who we're are the 99? We're all being looked of by God. I love it, Harvey. I, I love what you're doing. You're trying to see where do I fit? Which brings us to the question, so who are the 99? Because Christ says here, as we translate it in English, Verse 7, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. They are the ones who don't need to repent. They are righteous in their own mind. Oh! They are following the laws to the T. Okay, great. You're there. Okay, there is something we miss because of translation. Okay. Word nerds, like me, have discovered that in Scripture, anytime Christ speaks, the red letters in the Bible, anytime Christ speaks, at least 70% and as much as 80% of what Christ says is funny in some way. It's humorous. It's sarcasm. It's a pun, play on words. It's a joke of the day. And he's he totally messing with people. He's brilliant, the most brilliant man that ever walked the surface of this earth was also one of the greatest comedians who ever walked this earth. Just quick-witted, very good. It's the Son of God. He's brilliant, right? So, what we miss, as we look at this scripture, we say, okay, so he says there's more rejoicing in heaven uh, when, when one sinner repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So I guess... I guess it's all about the one and those of us in the church. We're righteous because we're part of the church and we're working on sanctification and justification. Jesus here is actually using humor. I'm going to get back to this. Can you hang on to your seats for a little bit? Because I'm going to come back to this. But you nailed it, Harvey, because what's lost in translation is humor. Have you ever had someone trying to translate a joke from their language into English? <laughs> And you're still waiting for that punchline? That's what's happening here. I'm going to show you in detail what the humor is. We probably won't laugh out loud because it's like someone trying to explain a joke, but at least you'll understand that there is a joke here. Okay? So there's a joke going on here. So let me walk you through how the people would have heard it. If you were a Jew during the time of Christ and you heard with your own ears Jesus say this, there's some things, some play on words that that you're missing. First of all, he starts in verse 1. Luke shares that the tax collectors and the, quote, sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. That word gathering, by the way, uh, is in the the, the part of speech that means it was a habit. It's just constantly happening. He's just always surrounded by these tax collectors and sinners. So why do they use this phrase, tax collectors and sinners? First of all, tax collectors. These were people who were viewed by the Jews as the biggest traitors you could possibly imagine, and they were traitors of the Jews because they were collecting taxes from Jews to pay Rome, who should not have their boot on the back of their neck. This is God's people in God's promised land. So not only were they traitors in that sense, but also... They were traitors because they were unethical people who had found a way to have personal financial gain by giving up their own people and working with the enemy. It's all about money for them. It's all about greed. They sold out. Secondly, the word sinners actually was this word that they would use talking about the people who were uh, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. You'll see them again in chapter 14, 21. The belief of the day was that if you were poor, blind, crippled, lame, it was because God was punishing you or even several generations before you for some major sin that had been committed. And God says, this has to be paid for. You have to take me seriously. And because you have done these major sins, I'm going to strike you. I will smite you with an ailment or with uh, financial problems to make sure you take me seriously. I'm going to drive you to your knees. That was the view of the day. And so 
What that means is the people that were around Jesus were tax collectors, traitors, people who'd sold out, unethical people, and people who were sick and despised. They were not allowed to come into church. The unchurched who were not allowed to ever step into church. That's who Christ was hanging out with, and that's who was hanging out with Christ. And they're upset about this. In fact, they're so upset that in verse 2, when they try to refer to Jesus, they use this phrase which means, this man. The Jews would get to such a level of frustration that when you were so angry with a person, you wouldn't even use their proper name. You would use this phrase, and you'd say, this man. Because if you used his name, you would give dignity to him. And he's past the point of dignity. They cannot stand him, and so they just say, this man. Welcomes sinners and eats with them. Two things. To welcome someone who's a sinner is also giving them dignity. And Christ was giving them the dignity of saying, you're someone worth my time. You have to understand uh, something very, very seriously. The devout Jews observed an old rule. Perhaps your mom or dad might have said it a different way. Their rule was, one must not associate with an ungodly man. Did your parents tell you a phrase? You know, you are the sum of the people that you surround yourself with. Birds of a feather flock together. Thank you, Randy. Or guilt by association. Jesus definitely had guilt by association here because of the people he was hanging out with. So they had that phrase. So obviously they're looking and saying, how could he possibly be a spiritually righteous person hanging out with these people? You know, if one bad apple spoils a whole bunch, one good apple in the midst of bad apples, there's no hope. Right? That's how they viewed it. So then um, this was taken so seriously that the rabbis, this is the pastors of the day, the rabbis would not associate with such a person even to teach him the law. You would not even allow these people to study the Bible with you. Can you imagine that? People so bad, you're like, yeah, you know, our Bible study's full. Sorry. We, we, we just couldn't possibly fit one more person in our Bible study. Eating with these people was regarded as worse than mere association. It implied welcome and recognition And many Pharisees were now publicly embarrassed that Jesus had been a guest in their home. Why? Because if anyone knew that Jesus was a guest in their home, it meant that they gave dignity and recognized Jesus as someone of some significance or importance. And the association of Jesus associating with the others led all the way back to them to say that they themselves would give dignity to these tax collectors and sinners. So it was a public shame that any of them had had Jesus in their home. All you got to do is look uh, in the previous chapter, and you'll see Jesus eating in a Pharisee's home. Might have been one of the Pharisees there. He's pretty ticked off because his own reputation has just been lost because of what Jesus is consistently doing. So all that in mind, let's flip over to the backside, and we're going to get to what I promised you. In verse 4, Jesus says the phrase, doesn't he leave the 99 to go get the one? It's one of the places where his humor totally gets lost in translation. So I want to have you figure this out. If the 99 refer to the Pharisees and the scribes, so let's make them the 99, because that's who Jesus is talking to. He's not talking to you. He's not talking to Christianity 2,000 years later. He's talking to a very specific group of people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So if that's the audience, and if the people who Jesus is hanging out with, the tax collectors and the sinners are the 1%, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law are the 99, how does it change your view of this parable? What is Jesus really trying to say right here? Back here. Another look at it for me has been we, you know, we're focusing on that 99%, but if you are out on a boat and one of your two children falls in the water, the one that's in the boat is safe. 
And so, of course, all of the effort of pulling the one out of the water and saving him is cause for great celebration. Mm -hmm. And driving around after the diagnosis with the tumor, I was sharing with you earlier, I was sharing the Bible lab with the nurse, and she's like, I'm here to take care of you. And it's like, you've got to come to the Bible lab. <laughs> it's about relationship with God like you yeah. never had it before. And she said, you know, I left the church because the church hurt me deeply. And I said, too often we're focused on we can't possibly be a part of that 144,000. You know, I was never at the top of my class a few times. I was never the top athlete or anything else. And yet here, you know, we've been taught you've got to make the 144, you're not getting in. Mm -hmm. And so I said, focus on God loving you so much that in Revelation it says there's a number that no one can even number that's going to make it in. And she said, that gives me hope. I'll be coming and joining you in the lab. Awesome. Awesome. So. Thank you. What, what, what you've said is absolutely key to understanding. We can work as hard as we want to become the 144,000, but Scripture never supports that. Who is it that divides the sheep from the goats? It's not us. We don't decide, you know what, I'm going to be a sheep, not a goat. It's, it's our Savior who decides who's part of the 144,000 and who's not. Um, we'll get to that later in a conversation. David. When I read this uh, parable about the, the lost sheep, I see Jesus uh, having that skill of a good Englishman of being able to insult somebody, and it isn't until later that they realize how they've been insulted. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not so sure that it took them quite some time to figure out. In fact, both groups might have been saying, wait a minute, is he insulting us? Um, both the one percenters and the 99. Because when you see the humor here in, in a second, when I dissect it, you're going to be like, whoa, that, that was very, very sarcastic. Using irony, he creates a very sarcastic statement. And there, there's just so many layers here, just like an onion. And, and I'm drawing on um, my childhood growing up on a farm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, my dad, my, my asking my dad, well, why did we cut the tail? Why did he cut the tail off that sheep? Well, sheep are so dumb that they can't lift up their tail and they'll just mess on themselves. So you have to cut the tail off. And when I... You see, you learn something new every week at the Bible Lab. <laughs> Thank you, David. And, and when I needed to have some orchard cleaning, the choice was between sheep and goats, and sheep, again, are just so dumb and lack personality. And so what Jesus is saying here to them, and, and he's talking to these two groups at the same time, and he said, well, which one of you wouldn't do this? Well, now he's putting, putting these Pharisees in the position of either being a shepherd, which they would not be. Yeah. Uh, Shepherds were not allowed to go to church, by the way. So then that, would, that might make them the owner of the flock, but I think that these Pharisees were so far removed and they wouldn't know right. what a sheep owner would do. Right. But nevertheless, Jesus puts them in the position. And then the opposite side is, okay, well, then you're a sheep, and now he's insulting them again. Mm -hmm. um, and then ultimately what I see is you guys really aren't worth any much more than anybody else because yeah. I'm going to leave you behind, mm -hmm. uh, and you guys are going to take care of yourself. I'm going to go get the, that one lost sheep, that 1%, but you're all worth the same to me. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're 1% or in the next parable, 10%. Mm -hmm. You're all worth the same to me. And then there's, mm -hmm. a, there's this, also this concept of ownership and possession. You know, a farmer takes his losses. A farmer increases the herd by breeding and, and having babies. And the farmer takes, uh, you know, just will take its losses. In this case, God's saying, no, I'm not going to take that loss. You are mine, and I'm going to seek you out, and I'm going to come get you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, David. I love that. The humor comes in in this way. It's, it's Jewish irony. He's asking questions, like you said. The Pharisees honestly wouldn't know how to answer. Um, and how he answers it is in a construct that the expected answer would be no. No, you wouldn't. 
And so he just keeps pushing this motif. Now, a shepherd would do this, wouldn't they? And they're, they're like shaking their head, no, no, a shepherd would not. He's looking at 99% versus 1%. And we're going to leave out in the open desert, which is the, we read open countryside, but the word is for the wilderness, the desert wilderness. Would you leave 99 sheep out there to either be stolen or eaten by wolves? The answer is no. So the very question that he asks is seen by the community as something that you'd say no. The answer is supposed to be no. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, he would. And they're like, why, why would I? And he just, keeps, he just keeps going on through his story while the people are like, this guy's crazy. And he ends this first part. We haven't even got to the second part yet. Hang on to your seats. Because he ends this first part by saying the biggest put down. I mean, it's very, it's, it's very rude sarcasm that he uses. Where in verse 7, at the very end, when he says there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. That's a close translation, but the literal translation is over 99 who don't see their need to repent. That's how it should be translated. The 99 who don't see any need at all. They're good. They're safe. We don't need a shepherd. The only sheep that would ever be left in that number out in the wilderness are sheep that say, we don't need a shepherd. We're good. We got our numbers. We don't need to be saved. We're good. Even in the middle of the wilderness. So Jesus uses this sarcasm to say, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who never will. So the question is, where do you see yourself in the parable now? You're definitely not part of the 99. Because even though some of you have gone to the Bible app since the very first session, you still need forgiveness, right? In fact, many of us realize even how much more we are that one percenter. We are desperate for God to come and save us. But Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and teachers of the law who see no need to be saved because they're doing everything in their power, which is more than enough to give them self-righteousness. That's why he uses the phrase here, 99 righteous persons. That's the tongue-in-cheek. That's the little place he puts a little bit of extra emphasis. Righteous people. This is the sarcasm. This is the irony. The irony comes in to ask the question, who's righteous? Scripture tells us no one's righteous. No, not one, much less 99. So Jesus' irony here is, if you think you are righteous and you don't need saving, you're more lost than the lost sheep. Because you have chosen not to be saved. You think you're okay. But the reality is, just because you're part of the flock doesn't mean you're part of the faithful. Because the faithful are different in Jesus' verbiage than the righteous. The righteous are self-righteous here. Can I take it one step farther? Because we got like three minutes before um, people have to run and get their kids. Jesus goes to the next step. We've talked about people who have gotten themselves lost. Okay? Whose responsibility was it for being lost? in Jesus' parable of the lost sheep. Did the shepherd lose him or did the sheep lose himself? Sheep wandered off, right? So whose fault is it that the sheep is lost? The sheep, okay? The, she the sheep dog, yeah, thank you, Byron. Totally different parable. But thank you for sharing, now be quiet. Um, In this parable, it's really easy. It's, it's really easy for us to apply. The sheep wandered off, got himself lost. Shepherd looks, many retellings of this tale, the sheep is there and Bramble's crying out and the shepherd is narrowing his search according to where he hears the sheep crying out for help, carries it back on his shoulders. But it's the sheep's fault, okay? Like David mentioned, sheep are dumb. But then we get to this next parable. Or suppose, verse 8, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? 
And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We totally miss what this is about because we don't speak Greek or Aramaic. Verse 8 says a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Now, you have to realize something. There is a word used here for these coins that's very special. It's very rare in the New Testament for a very good reason. It's the drachma. It's a Greek coin. Now, a good devout Pharisee or teacher of the law would not touch a drachma. Why? Because they wouldn't touch, if they could help it, they wouldn't touch a Greek or a Roman coin. Why? Because on the faces of the coins were graven images. In fact, the Roman one had, the, had Caesar on there who says, is there any God greater than Caesar? So they saw it as blasphemy, abomination to God to even touch these because they were seen as idols to these leaders. Side note, it's really funny when Jesus is, uh, is having this conversation when they say, who should we pay taxes to? And Jesus says, uh, does anybody have a denarius? And a Pharisee pulls one out of his pocket, and everyone starts laughing because he's not supposed to have it. Okay? You're not supposed to touch it. And so, once again, Jesus is messing with people. So, he's messing with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law here as well because he uses a coin that they would not touch. Why? It's for a very special reason. They're not touching these people here. They're untouchables, unacceptable in God's sight. And so he asked once again a question that everyone would expect the answer to be no. If, you law, if a woman has 10 drachma, the Greek coin, and loses one, let me help you understand something. In today's economy, <laughs> 10 drachma is $2.50. A lot of people have tried to say, well, this is her dowry and this is very important. Commentators say it, there's just no support for that. It's a very small amount of money, and it's Greek money. The Jews would definitely uh, prefer to touch the money from Tyre uh, and use shekels, half shekels, and, and all of that to try to make sure that they're not touching coins that have a uh, human face on it that's being glorified like a god. And so uh, $2.50, she loses a quarter. He asked the question, how many of you, if you lost a quarter, wouldn't you sweep your whole house and get a candle because you don't have windows in your house, your floor's dirt, it could be anywhere. You light a candle looking in all the dirty, dusty corners because obviously that quarter has just gotten covered with dirt and you can't find it. Wouldn't you do that? And they're all looking at each other saying, now, I'm economical, but it's a quarter. Seriously, it's a quarter. Two fifty. Uh, it's not a lot of money. You might be able to get something at Taco Bell, but you're not fine dining on $2.50. Jesus asked this question about this coin that none of them would touch. Now, here's the interesting thing. He starts out with a sheep who can make a choice and wander off. Jesus is brilliant. He says, just in case you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm going to talk about a woman now. It's very rare in stories. Luke loves doing this man-woman uh, pairing of, of parables. But to use a woman as a main character was, was unique. And so Jesus says, okay, there's a woman. She loses this untouchable coin, and she does something you would never do. She searches this entire house. Who lost the coin? Did the coin lose the coin? No. The coin did not lose the coin. Who lost the coin? The woman. The woman. When Jesus talks about the woman, the bride, what is he always, always, always talking about? The church. Is it possible that the church is losing the coins? And Jesus says what the church has to do. The church absolutely has to do the unthinkable, touch the untouchable, search for the unsearchable. It's the church's fault the coin is lost. Jesus says, you may look at these lost sheep and say it's their own fault, but until you get too cocky, I want you to understand, sometimes it's the church's fault. And sometimes the church loses these precious souls. And we have to do everything possible, no matter how small or insignificant you see these souls, 
God says you have to search every dark corner to grab that untouchable coin and bring them back into the storehouse. It's in the nature of God. He doesn't care what mankind says is touchable and not touchable. Every single soul needs to be saved in the sight of God. So our question is, what does that say about the character of God? We don't have time to dig into it, but we have to ask the question in our own minds this week, who are the people who are untouchable? That we say, you're really not appropriate to be part of my church community until you clean yourself up, fix your behavior, become part of the 99. I don't think the Savior really wants you here. And before we feel too cocky, it will not take you too long to go through a list of people who are doing certain behaviors, certain activities. I could do a list right now and totally mess up your entire week (laughs) of people who we've written off as lost. God says whether this person sees their loss or not, God's desire is that they be found. That's the character of God, and I don't know what that does for you, but it makes me feel really good as I look at all the individuals who we've written off just simply because they're not part of the 99. Perhaps they stopped going to one of our churches, but during their memorial service, it comes out that the Spirit of God is in them, and they, they are part of that 1%, and God is working with them and through them and for them. We've got a long way to go to continue understanding this infinite love of God, don't we? This week I challenge you not only to make sure that you see yourself as in desperate need of a Savior to be part of the 1%, but to also ask the question, what kind of church does God, if we're going to match His character, what kind of church does God want us to be in seeking out the untouchable coins as well? Is that the greatest challenge of all? It definitely is for me. I was blessed by that conversation, and I pray you were as well. This is the conclusion of the Kingdom Tales series, but I want to make sure that you know we're coming back. Episode 58 is a brand new series, and we don't want you to miss it. And just know it's our prayer that God uses you in the place where you are to truly be the church that God wants to represent him in your area. God bless you, and we'll see you next episode. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.